Last night I was at a, uh, a wedding reception and noticed kind of in the background, not really connected with what we were doing, everything, that the TV was on. And uh, if you were watching TV last night, you know preseason football has started. I think the Giants and the, the Jets were on. I'm not a big preseason fan. I'm a total football fan. I don't watch any preseason at all. But just knowing it was on was kind of a warm, comfortable feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Just knowing it's back there. We're in August. The, the start of the season is in sight. It's, a, it's about to happen. And boy, there's just something magical about August. Everybody's good in August. Have you noticed that? Even the Redskins can win the Super Bowl in August. You know, I mean, everybody's O and O. Everybody's got a lot. As a matter of fact, if you are a Redskin fan, I guess the good news is the only team right now that can't win the Super Bowl might be the Dallas Cowboys. They're just getting killed. Uh, on injury. So, but you know, there's just an excitement in August about any time we're, we're starting a season. Now, of course, August, even in all this heat, it plays a purpose. It's, it's for conditioning. It's for training. Uh, it's for practice, getting in shape. This is what's going on. And they, they do all this because they want to get to September. And they do all that because they want to get to the game. They want to play it well. They want to get to that line of scrimmage. Now, I want us to think for a moment about Sunday morning and Wednesday nights. And when we gather, is this the game? No, I, I think I'd really liken this more to preseason, to practice. We get together. It is to train. It's to learn. It's to condition. But then that leads to the question, well, then where's our September. Where, where's our line of, script, uh, of scrimmage? Where are we going and playing the game? Got a very simple thought for us this morning. I'd like to suggest that the game is people. People. Relationships are where we live out our relationship with Christ. Relationships are where we live for Christ. Now, we've been in Romans chapter 12 for a number of weeks now, and in that, we've been looking at a change that needs to take place in relationships, a variety of relationships. In verse 1, we looked at a change that needs to take place in our relationship with God. In verse 2, uh, a, relationship, uh, a change in our relationship with the world. In verse 3 through 8, a change in our relationship with ourselves and today we come to, to Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 21, and we see a change that needs to take place in our relationship with people. And, and what I want to suggest today, it's not how we're acting or interacting with people, but a change in how we understand relationships. A change in, in how we understand the importance of relationships. Relationships are where we live for God. Relationships are where we experience God. And Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and following kind of explains what that looks like and how that comes about. So if you would, turn there in your, with me now in your Bible to Romans 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the, the chairs in front of you. If it's not right in front of you, it's on the row there somewhere. Just kind of point up and down the row and somebody will hand it to you. But uh, open your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. We're looking at 9 to 21. And folks, this is... Uh, this is not a passage we read with interest. This is not a passage that we read and think, hmm, I wonder how I do that. Folks, I think this is one of those passages we read and we think, I'm not going to do that. We read these passages and we see the difficulty of it. We think about the present relationships we're in and we just think, there's no way. And, and so before we even read these verses, I want to kind of remind us of our motivation. 
Why we would come into verse 9 and say, I've got to do this, not here's why I'm not going to do this. And we've got a lot of motivation just in what we've read in Romans. If you, know, if you were to sit down and read Romans in one sitting, I mean, we've been at it for over a year now. But if you were to sit down in chapter 1 and just start reading, then about 20 minutes ago, before you get to Romans 12, 9, about 20 minutes ago, you would have read in chapter 1, verse 18, that God's wrath is being poured out on sin and sinners. You would have learned in Romans 3, 23, that you are that sinner. You, me, all of us, we're the sinners that God's wrath is being poured out on. In chapters 1 through 3, we learn that our intelligence, our religiosity, our morality has not, cannot, will not fix that problem. We are in a bad shape with God with nothing but His wrath out in front of our future. And the news gets even worse because we arrive at Romans 6.23 and it says there's a consequence There's a consequence for being a sinner. It says that the wages, the payment, what you get for sin is death. And that death is not about a casket and a funeral. That that death is about spiritual separation from God in all eternity. That that death is about hell. I mean, there's there's a significant portion of Romans that is very heavy and very bad news. But praise God, it is balanced by some very heavy Good news, because we come into Romans chapter 5, and while we are in a horrible status, God loves us right in the middle of that status. I love Romans 5, 8. It shows God looking down over the precipice of heaven, and He sees you, and He's not waiting for your best moment, and then He'll rush down and save you, because that's the moment you deserve it. It says, while we're sinners... While we're sinners, while we're rebelling, while we're uninterested in Him, that's when God moved. That's when God moved into this world in the person of His Son. And His Son, Christ, died on the cross for us. He paid the penalty for my sins. He fixed what I could not fix. He cleaned up what I could not clean up. And by faith in Him, I can not only be forgiven of sins and have eternal life, but Romans 5.10 says I can move from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Man, everything can be okay between God and now. Not because of something I did, but because of something God did for me. Romans chapter 8 says, I'll, I'll be adopted as a child of God. Romans 8, 1, I have no fear of wrath, no fear of condemnation. And the end of that chapter says, and it's absolutely secure. This new status I have in God is eternally secure in Him. What an incredible love. That God has given to us. And it is that love that should inspire this love for each other. Let's look and see how that is described. Romans chapter 12. Let's begin in verse 9. It says there, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. Don't be lazy in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never... Not with any person, not in any situation, under no circumstance. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What we have in this passage is a very succinct, very simple way of explaining how to love the lovable and everybody else. You know, folks, it's interesting. You see all this description of love and all these things. And to be honest with you, the very first phrase is the one I can't get past The very first phrase is the one that to me just turbocharges the whole thing. It says, let love be genuine. Your your translation may say, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, the love's got to be real. You, You can't do this kind of love and be mumbling under your breath. You can't do this kind of love. You can't show this love to others and, and then turn around and be something different and say something different behind their back. It's like God is saying, love. I mean it. I mean, really. You see, folks, God is not just interested in the activities of love. He's actually interested in you and I being love. I read this. I see that phrase. I think God wants his love coursing through our veins. I think God wants his love filling up our lives, filling up our body, and flooding out of us to all who are around us. And so he makes it very clear, listen, I'm not just interested in your activity. I'm watching your heart. I'm watching your mind. I'm watching your motives as well as your actions. We're not just to do loving things. We're actually to be this. This is what we are to, to grow into. Well, folks, one of the signs that God's love is coursing through you, one of the signs that God's love has filled you up is you abhor evil. That, that word abhor, we don't use that word a lot, do we? That's a, that's a big word. Abhor. What do you abhor? That word abhor literally means to shrink back. If you see it, you'd, you'd grimace. You'd step back. You'd actually have to distance yourself from it. Now, obviously, as, as followers of Christ, we should abhor all sins. But if we think about it in the context of our passage this morning, think about those relational sins. Do, do we abhor lying? Does does lying help a relationship? Does it build a relationship? Do we abhor just even being around somebody who's stirring up activity against somebody else? Somebody who's stirring up a dislike of, of somebody else. If we're just seeing it, if we're just hearing it, do we abhor it? Do we shrink back? You see, when God's love is coursing through us, that's what's going to happen. We almost can't stomach lying and and cheating and stealing and backbiting and slander and gossip. Anything that hurts and tears down. That's just not what God's love does. We're not in the demolition demolition business. We're not in the destruction business. God's love is in in the building business. 
And so we abhor anything that hurts relationships, ours, somebody else's. We abhor that. And instead we cling, we grab a hold of what is good. And I think as Paul says that, that we cling to what is good, then what he does in the rest of the passage is he begins to give us some very concrete, some very objective ideas about the good that we cling to in love. Now, folks, this is one of these passages where I, I think you could just about make a sermon out of every three or four words. I mean, read three words, stop and do a sermon. Read three words. But I've kind of summarized this whole thing into nine qualities of love. Nine qualities of love that you and I need to cling to as we seek to have God's love coursing through our lives. Number one, it says devoted affection, brotherly affection. Now, you know what affection is. That's feeling a warmth, uh, a kindness, a joy, a pleasure in somebody else. I mean, when you just hear the word affection, you just kind of think soft, right? It's just soft. It's just good. There's a, a sweet affection there. But then it adds the word brotherly. Now, do you choose a brother? No, you get stuck with one. You're, you're born with a brother. There's a bond there, a committed bond. Now, why does it talk about a committed bond and this warm affection? Because, folks, that's what you and I should move to in our relationships. Isn't it easy to try to keep a lot of relationships at a distance, even our good ones? You know, I keep them at a distance. I, I've got them there when I need them. I kind of move in and out. No real commitments. There's some relationships I like to just slip back out of and nobody even notices I'm gone, Right? But see, with this kind of love that we cling to, it constantly draws us into more relationships. It draws us to go deeper in our relationships. We're not looking at relationships on how we keep it kind of loose, no real commitments. We're actually saying, how can there be more of a bond? How can there be more of a commitment? That's going to happen on all kinds of different levels, but it is to be happening on every different level. Second aspect we cling to in this love is honor. We honor people. We find the value in them. Now, for some folks, it's a little bit hard to find the value in them, isn't it? If we're being honest. Are you all awake? Is it nap time already? Come on now. Yeah, some people, it's a little bit challenging to find what is valuable in them. You know what we are, folks? We're treasure hunters. We're treasure hunters. We look. We go looking. We go hunting for the value in people. And we treat them based on that value we find. We could treat them based on other things we find, right? But we choose to treat them based on that value. And I love that word there, outdo. Do you see that word? Folks, that is the, this is the only place in all of Scripture that I see something like this. God's, God's challenging us to make it a competition, I can find more honor and value in you than you can in me. I, I, hey, all of you, I bet, we can, I bet I can find more honor in them than you can. I bet I can find more value in them. Than, I mean, we're to be in competition with each other. We're, we're to be out there working at it, hunting for it, trying to find that value in others and then treating them like that. Boy, you see that going on. Then The next one's kind of obvious. This kind of love is enthusiastic. You know what? You can't treat this love as a chore. This is not a to-do list to make an angry God happy. It's, oh, I've got to do this today. It's, it's not a chore. You can't, again, you can't do this and be mumbling under your breath. We're excited about it. We're looking for it. You know what? You can't leave here today and say, okay, God, I'll walk through my week. And if I see an opportunity to love like this, if you just hit me in the face with it, then I'll do it. No, enthusiasm, when you're enthusiastic about something, you're not awaiting till it comes to you. You're going to it. 
You're excited about it. You're engaging in it. You're looking for We're looking for a way to be this kind of love. What's the fourth one here? It's patient. Oh, we don't need that in any of our relationships, do we? Yeah, man, I tell you what, if you're in a relationship, then patience is needed. You know, relationships go through some hard times, don't they? Some rocky times, hopefully, are good relationships. Hopefully, all they go through is an occasional bump here and there. But reality would suggest that most of us are in at least one relationship that it's more than a bump and it's more than here or there. Man, it's just hard to stay engaged with that person. It's hard to be in relationship with them. It's hard, I like that word, to maintain hope. Hard to maintain hope in them. Hard to maintain hope in this relationship. It's going to take constant prayer. It's, it's not within us to do this. But that's our attitude. And I'm going to be patient. I'm going to work at that hope. I'm going to keep praying about it. I'm going to keep looking for the inspiration. I'm going to keep looking for the power. I'm going to keep looking for the opportunity in this relationship to do that. Number five, this kind of love is generous. And that kind of goes without saying. Gosh, look at God, folks. He's a giver, not a taker. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that a little bit. We have this tendency to look at God as what he's going to take from us. You know, if you follow God, he's going to take all your stuff, take all your fun. That's not true. God's a giver. He gives you all your stuff. He gives you all your fun. God is a giver. And so if his love is coursing through my life, I'm going to be a giver. I'm not measuring, not stingy, not seeing if I get it back. Man, you're looking, what can I bless with? What can I give with? And then this next one, hospitable. Hospitable. That, the, that original word, and I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody, it, it literally means a love of strangers. A love of strangers. You know, what, what is a stranger? A stranger is somebody who's not comfortable. They're, they're in a context that they're not used to. Maybe they don't speak the language. Maybe they don't know the customs. You know, an English-speaking American could walk in this room and be a stranger. You know, I mean, we have a language in church, don't we? We got a language. We got kind of a decorum. We, you know, we know when to stand, when, stand, when to sit, what to say, what not to say. You know, somebody could be in, be in here a stranger. You know, this kind of love looks for strangers. It looks for those that aren't comfortable, that don't quite fit in. You know the reason this love looks for that? Because, folks, when God's love's coursing through you, you don't throw a switch. You don't turn the switch on and then turn it back off. Oh, I'm coming home to my loving family. I'm going to turn the switch on. Oh, I'm going to work. Nobody I love there. Turn the switch off. You don't turn. You can't do that. The love is coursing through you. Now, think about this. We've got strangers... We're going to come to the end of the passage and we're going to see enemies. You know, as we look at love in this passage, it reminds me of something Jesus said. I believe it's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus said there, you know, if you love somebody who loves you, if you give to somebody who's going to give something back, guess what? You're not doing anything different than a pagan. There is absolutely nothing that marks your life as any different than the worst God-hater on the planet. A God-hater can love people who love them back. A God-hater can give something to somebody because they're going to they're get it in return. Now, folks, remember what we're saying. We need relationships to serve the Lord. Well, if the only place I'm loving is in the same place that pagans love... Hey, wait a minute. I need strangers... 
I need enemies. Now, I didn't say go out and make enemies, okay? <laughs> That's not, go out there and find some enemies and make them. But you, all of a sudden you start to understand. I mean, folks, how much of your love is for people who love you and will give it back? I think if we could actually put some kind of number on it, I think most of us would be a little shocked. What, 85? 90, 95% of who you love and who you would attempt to be and to do these kinds of things with, I'm going to guess it's for people who are going to do it right back for you. People for whom you expect to get it back. So if this list is only accomplished inside my home, and honestly, inside my home, this is a hard list. But if I'm only looking to do this with people, I'm going to get it back. I'm no different than a pagan. That's a, that's a, is it just me or is that a big thought to swallow? You see, you see what I'm talking about? How we need to change the way we look at relationships? I need those relationships to live out my faith in Christ. Let's look at the next one here. Number seven, it's gracious. It's gracious. This kind of love, it doesn't give people what they deserve. A lot of times we're wanting to give people what they deserve, aren't we? You know what they deserve? They deserve a good lecture. They deserve a good lesson. Do you ever drive down the road and pick out cars that need a lesson? Do you ever start talking to yourself thinking, well, I pull them over and tell them what it is. Yeah, man, we're, we're, we look at people. We look at people like that. This kind of love is not looking at that. This kind of love is gracious. It, it thinks, what, what blesses? What gives? What builds? Let me say it again. As believers, we're not in the demolition business. We're in the building business. We build into people's lives, not tear it down. Well, they deserve to be torn down. You know what? They may very well. I'm not challenging whether that person deserves to be torn down. I'm saying that's just not the business we're in. We're not in that business. We're in the, the building business. Number eight, it's sympathetic. It cares. It feels. I like the word it sees. That, that's what sympathetic means for me. It sees. I mean, folks, if you'll think about it, we don't always want to see. I mean, look at, look at what Paul uses here. He uses two extremes. If you see them rejoicing or if you see them weeping. Well, you think, well, I'd rather be doing the rejoicing. You know, that's not always so much fun. Well, let's be honest, folks. Sometimes we're watching people rejoice and we can get a little envious, can't we? A little jealous. Really? Did they need something else good in their life? Hey, Lord, how about spreading it out a little bit? Or that was, that should have been my promotion. That should have been my opportunity. Why do they get another? Why do they get an? You know what? Sometimes we don't want to rejoice when they're rejoicing. I don't want to see it. Very easy to understand. Sometimes we don't want to see when they're hurting. That reminds us of the hurt in our own lives. Or when we see that hurt, it makes us really in touch with our own inability. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do in that moment. I don't want to, I don't want to see hurt. I don't want to see their joy. I don't want to see it. You know what, folks? When God's love's coursing through your veins, you see. You see the extremes and you see everything in between. You see it and you go and engage in it. You engage in it until you feel it yourself. And lastly, this kind of love is humble. It's humble. It's not about pushing other people down to build ourselves up. And folks, we spend a lot of life doing that. As a matter of fact, the more beat down we feel, the more beaten down we're going to do. We don't push down to build ourselves up. Man, how easy is it just to, I mean, just regularly be thinking, I'm just, just, you know, I need to explain to you just how stupid you are and how smart I am. How wrong you are and how right I am. You have those conversations going on in your mind all the time. We all do. 
This kind of love is not focused on, <laughs> again, the lecture you need and how smart I am. You know what? This kind of love is just constantly thinking about, man, maybe you are wrong. Maybe you are dumb. Maybe you are weak. How do we get on the same page? Not, not what do you need to do so that we can be on the same What can I do? What can I do so that we're there together? So that we're in harmony, so that we're enjoying this together. There's not this, this I've got a, a lofty view of myself and it's your job to move. It's your job to come over to me. No, man, how can I get us there together? Now, folks, I ran through that pretty quick. I mean, we could have certainly spent much more time defining words. We could have spent more time looking at some objective examples of how you do each one of these things. But you don't have to spend a lot of time in this passage to think, boy, that's impossible. Boy, that, that, that's really hard. I have a hard time doing that with, inside my home with the ones I love, much less getting to strangers and, and to enemies. That's hard. But you know, folks, there's only one reason why we don't do it. And yes, I am assuming you don't do it. There's one reason why you, why I do not love like that. One reason. As a matter of fact, we not only have a reason for not loving like that, we have a reason that I think probably for a lot of us gives us a sense of confidence. A sense of justification. I'm actually ready to stand before God and explain why I didn't love like that. One reason. They don't deserve it. That's why we don't love people like that. They don't deserve it. You say, who are the they? Anybody you determine. See, we have all fashioned for ourselves a very nice throne, a very nice judgment chair. And all day long, as you and I move in and out of relationships, we judge who deserves what and who doesn't deserve what. I mean, we do it, right? From our mate, to our friends, to our enemies, to our so-called friends, to co-workers, constantly judging what they deserve and what they don't deserve. Oh, I'm not going to do that for her. She doesn't love me. She's not meeting my needs. Why should I act like that? She's not, they're not going to return it. They're not going to do it for me. Are you kidding? Love like that? They just abuse it. They just take advantage of it. And we'll just go through life looking at different relationships, judging what they deserve and what they don't deserve. And then because we've judged, then we feel righteous. Ready to tell God why. I'm not going to love like that. And in verse 18, God violently rips that justification out of our hands. In verse 18 and following, God says, vengeance is mine. Now, I don't know about you. I've never gotten revenge. That's, that's such an ugly word. That's what bad people do. I don't get revenge. I just kind of even the score a little bit. <laughs> this isn't revenge. I'm just making things right. You know, we just need to close the loop on this a little bit. We got all kinds of words for it, folks. All kinds of things we call payback. And God very clearly here, very distinctly here, it doesn't tell me out to the side, read like this. I read it. I might be wrong. I read it very harsh. I hear God crawling up into your face and into my face and saying, vengeance is mine. I own it. It's my property. It's my job. Get off my property. I am a gracious, loving God, and I have given you much. I have not given you vengeance. I am a gracious, loving God, and I will empower you and enable you to do much, not to judge. 
I have not put you in the place to make the call of what your mate or what your child or what your parent or what that coworker or what that friend or what that cousin deserves. It's not your job. Get off my property. It's mine. Now, lest you think I can't close the loop, what's he say there? I promise I will repay. And folks, in my mind's eye, I kind of imagine, you know, we're, we're in line. We're going up to the real judgment seat. Your judgment seat ain't it. We're going up to God and we're giving account for our life. And so I step up there. It's my turn. And he says, Randy, I want to talk with you about some of your relationships. I want to talk to you about Romans 12, 9 to 21. I know you know this passage. I heard you preach it once. You did an awesome job. I know you understand it. So, Randy, since you know what this says, let's look at, well, let's just start at the top of the alphabet. Let's just start at A. Why didn't in that person's life? Well, Lord, yeah, <laughs> I realize right now that looks kind of bad. But the reason I didn't do that is because they, ah, uh, stop. Lord, you interrupted me. You shouldn't interrupt. It's not nice. You, you, you asked me why, and I'm getting ready to tell you. The reason I didn't do that for them is because they... Stop! God, why do you keep stopping me? And God's going to say, because you keep saying they. It's not they. It's you. I'm talking to you. As a matter of fact, they are one, two, three, four. There's 17 back in the line. When they get up here... I will talk to them about what they did. And you know what, Randy? You're right. They didn't do what they should have done. They were wrong. And I will absolutely handle that. It's my job. I do it well. I don't want to talk with you about what they did. I want to talk with you about why you didn't do what you And see, folks, I think the only thing that can come from that then is a very horrible, awkward silence because the only reason that you and I rebel against this passage in every relationship, probably close to every day, every sentence begins with the word they. And we're never going to be able to get past that first word. God says, so far as it depends upon you, I, mean, I love the fact God says that because think about if God had said, I command that you make all your relationships good. Well, we can't do that, can we? It takes two to what? It takes two to tango. It takes two to have a relationship. I mean, yes, I can do my part. But if they don't do their part, if they don't respond appropriately, it's not going to be a good relationship. God, how can you hold me accountable for that? And God says, I'm not holding you accountable for that. I'm not holding you accountable for whether the relationship is good or not. I'm not holding you accountable for if they do what they're supposed to do or not. I'm holding you accountable for your part. And your part is to do everything you can to make a relationship good. To do everything you can to be at peace. That's your responsibility. So don't, don't begin any sentences with the word they. But folks, when you start understanding all this, when we see what God is saying here in this passage, all of a sudden we realize, man, I, I, I need relationships to live out my relationship with the Lord. Yes, the good ones. Yes, the ones inside the family. Yes, I need those best friends. 
but I need the enemies. I need the good ones and the bad ones and the ugly ones and, and all the relationships in between. Every single one of them is a place where we go and, and live out that relationship. Every single one of them is a place where I can go out and so far as it depends upon me, be what God has called me to be in that passage. So folks, here's the, here's the bottom line. We need relationships. We're going to need relationships to experience God, to grow in God. We need relationships to, to serve Christ, to love Christ, to, to live for Christ. You need Jesus. I mean, you need relationships to, to know Jesus. You need to, to know and experience Him. You need relationships to express your love for Him. And man, hold on to that last line. I mean, that's the belt buckler right there. Folks, your worst relationship may be your best opportunity to know Him and to become like Him. You ever been falsely accused? Jesus was falsely accused. It cost Him His life. He did it for you. I don't want to be falsely accused, but you know what? If that's what's brought to me, that's a chance to experience a little bit of what my Savior endured and what He experienced for me. Ever had a relationship where you did nothing but good, nothing but love, and every bit of it was interpreted wrong and returned with evil? You think Jesus knew anything about that? You think Jesus experienced that? He did for you. Our worst relationships can be our best opportunity. That's where we're on our knees. That's where we're depending upon Him. That's where we're asking for help. Our worst relationships may be our best opportunity to know Him and to experience Him. And boy, when you, when you grasp that thought, all of a sudden, all these commands of Scripture start to make sense. Now I understand why. I mean, just, there can't be lying and there can't be gossiping and there can't be backbiting and there can't be stirring up hatred from this person over there to that. I, when I'm doing all that, it is trashing. It is destroying my best opportunity to know Him. I can't, I can't do that. Now, folks, I understand a statement like that. Man, it's just like popcorn going off all across the room right now. What about, 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 what about? I mean, I said that. We read these verses and we think, what about? And we think of a person and we think of a situation, don't we? I mean, surely, God, you can't. You can't expect that there with him, with her, with that. What about that? You know what, folks? The Scripture will guide us into some places where we do draw lines. Where we do go in another direction. The Scripture will actually talk about some exceptions at times to how we do things. Because you see, love does not enable evil. Love does not empower evil. Love doesn't give evil more and more opportunity. I get it. There are mean, abusive, criminal-like people out there that we're called to love. But folks, before we get to the exceptions and the lines, you've got to own this passage. You've got to own it. You've got to live it. You've got to take it as far and as wide and as deep as you can before you start drawing the lines and talking about the exceptions. Aren't you glad that God didn't consider you an exception for His love? Now, you know, when I hear that, when I hear me just say that phrase, I mean, if you said that and I was sitting out there, I was sitting back there, 
Aren't you glad God didn't make you an exception? You know what I would hear in that? You know what I would say? But I'm not as bad as they are. And I, and I mean that. That's not hypothetical. I'm not as bad as them. I, I haven't done the things that person has done. I've not acted like they've acted. I've not responded like they've responded. I'm not as, I'm not as bad as them. And that might be true. We might all agree with me. We might all agree with you. Yes, you are absolutely not as bad as that person. But you know what? God traveled farther to love you than you're being called to travel to love that other person. That's a big thought to swallow. Not quite sure I buy it. Well, maybe hear it this way. A holy God traveled further to love unholy you than unholy you is required to love an unholy other. Folks, the distance is not from unholy to unholy. The distance is from the holy to the holy. And we are never going to have the motivation to love this way until we start looking this way. The more I keep my eyes on Christ, the more I'm focused on His love this way, the more motivation there is to love this way. Because when we look at each other, it's not always very motivating. When we look at each other, it's not going to inspire that kind of love. So it is that kind of love that inspires this kind of love. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a difficult passage to bow and pray. Lord, maybe in here for a moment we see your word, we see what you're saying and it makes sense and we want that. And God, it's easy right now when I want to pray for help. God, help me. Help me to love like that. Help me to be that and to do that. But God, man, the echo of that prayer is hardly over before I just think I just don't want to do it. I just I don't want to do it. I don't want to call. I don't want to engage. I don't want to start that over. All it's going to do is just give them more opportunity to take advantage. All it does is bring more hurt. Jesus, would you help us keep our eyes focused on you? May we be so overwhelmed by your love. May we be so flooded with your love that it, it just pours out on others and it lands where it lands. God, help us to realize that while there's challenges in loving our best friends and in loving our family, God, help us to be ready, willing, enthusiastic about the strangers and the enemies. That's where our real opportunity is to look different than a pagan. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, Lord, I, I can't do this. We can't do this. We really, really need your help. We ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.